Hello and welcome to the 31st episode of The Broadcast, a Chicago podcast dedicated to showcasing women who are making an impact on their communities throughout Chicago and Illinois. For our return listeners, welcome back as always and thanks so much for your continued support. If this is your first time listening to The Broadcast, welcome. We're glad you found us. All of this is made possible because of you and our amazing sponsors and partners, including Evolver, a centralized digital hub that curates best-in-class resources, tools, and events to help women advance professionally and personally, and our usual regular podcast home, 1871, which is Chicago's premier hub for entrepreneurs, innovation, and technology. And I'm Becky Carroll, President and CEO of C-Strategies. I'm usually your host, but as we celebrate Black History Month, the broadcast, which is also in the heart of a six-month series focused on racial equity, I'm thrilled to be turning over the hosting reins for a podcast takeover to Shakina Perry. Shakina is a voting rights advocate, youth engagement specialist, and a passionate defender of women's rights. She's not a future leader. She is a leader today, right now. And you're going to hear a lot about this young woman moving forward. So stay tuned. Uh, She put together a really great episode today that features two Black women who are fierce environmental leaders who have taken up the torch from a Chicago legend that they're going to talk about today. So Shakina, take it away. Thank you so much, Becky, and happy Black History Month, everyone. I'm Shakina Perry, and I'm honored to be taking over the broadcast podcast for the month of February. 2021 marks 10 years since the passing of Hazel M. Johnson, the mother of environmental justice. As we reflect on her work on a local and national level to bring attention to the environmental issues facing our communities, there's a new face of leadership here in Cook County that's working to do the same. Today, I want you to hear from two dynamic women in the environmental sector. I'm impressed with how they bring community voices, stories of perseverance, and their full selves into this work. So one by one, I'm thrilled to welcome Ayana Simba, Clean Water Policy Director for the Illinois Environmental Council. Ayana, say hi. I already messed up. Hi. (laughs) All righty. And I'm going to introduce Don Walker, Chief of Staff to Metropolitan Water Reclamation District Commissioner Cam Davis. Don? Hi. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. All righty. So why this topic? First, I'm a Black woman and I enjoy celebrating Black women doing amazing things. But I'm also a historian who happens to love environmental justice and clean energy work. So it should come as no surprise that I did a little historical digging. Hazel M. Johnson was the first person I learned about and I'm continuously impressed with her tenacity, perseverance, and quite frankly, her her audacity to defy the environmental movement in the 60s and 70s. And it was predominantly white, middle-class and male-dominated. So as I was preparing for this talk, I came across a few local articles outlining Johnson's legacy from Block Club Chicago to WTTW. Shout out to local news. Not only will Ayana and Don knock you off your feet, I have no doubt you'll be inspired to learn more about Hazel following this conversation. So let's get started. Don, I met you in early 2019 following a community discussion around environmentalism. And I was so impressed with your background, but particularly your love for community. 
you've held an array of positions in the environmental space, from urban planning to clean energy to now the water reclamation district. I even noticed you majored in environmental science in undergrad. Can you point to a moment in your upbringing that influenced your decision to pursue environmentalism as a profession? And from your perspective, has the, chain, the field changed much since then? Well, honestly, I'm curious by nature and I ask a lot of questions. Um, so for the most part of the better part of my schooling, I went to my neighborhood school, but then midway, I kind of transferred to a school that was more mixed race. And I started to notice that there were topics that weren't taught in my like neighborhood school. And so, and I'm like, these are topics that directly impact me and where I live and the environment. So uh, what really got me kind of ramped up in the field is that I had a teacher that was really passionate and kind of like hands-on about, we, we went to factories to understand, you know, how the factories affected air quality. Uh, we saw how water pooled in the streets and how it kind of, it, the runoff would actually end up in your backyard or in your basement. So I would say that that had a direct impact on me. Uh, but what kind of pushed me over the edge is that someone actually told me, oh, well, environmental work, it's, it's you know, it's not a lot of uh, women of color are in that field. And so when I heard that, I'm like, okay, that's the field I want to be in. <laughs> like, this is definitely what I want to do. And so if you tell me that I can't do it, then watch me, I will do it. So that was kind of what pushed me to want to be in the field. It was a combination of those things. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you did ask a question about, have I noticed that the field has changed? Um, I will say that there have been some positive changes in the field. Like for instance, I'm, I've noticed that over time that there seems to be more, um, more support for communities kind of getting involved in environmental issues. Like for instance, communities, they're called upon to like gather data, you know, their actual citizens that are involved in kind of doing that. And just, I, I feel that the environmental space, folks are beginning to understand that the community needs to have a voice in collecting data about their own environment. And I, one thing that I have noticed that has been changing is that I feel as if the environmental field is looking more towards indigenous uh, people to understand how to best protect the environment hmm. and understand what they've done. And so it's like people are looking at the roots to understand um, kind of how the environment, you know, just kind of not just the issue, but how other groups that are, have been native to where we live actually um, address environmental issues. So I'm happy about that. And I, I do see that there are slowly evolving to be more people of color in the field. No, I love that. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Don. Um, I think one of the things that you, you mentioned, the factories and the runoff uh, in our communities, Hazel Johnson's, her husband had died from lung cancer uh, in the late 60s. And it was a little suspicious to her because he wasn't a heavy smoker. So it was like lung cancer, like this is odd. Following his death, a news report had came out stating that Altgill Gardens on Chicago's Southeast side uh, had the highest cancer rates in the city. Uh, and so naturally, right, as you're talking about the community orientedness, it prompted her to go door to door in the community. Um, and she learned that almost everyone knew someone who had died from cancer in that area. And uh, this led to her to learn more about the southeast side of Chicago uh, and the factories and the landfills and the industrial facilities that emitted all of these chemical fumes and toxic waste into the air. Uh, so she was skilled at identifying problems, activating the community 
and turning that into policy demands to hold people in power accountable to the communities that they serve. So for you, Ayana, at IEC, you've worked your way up through the organization, starting as an intern, and now you're leading policy conversations around clean water initiatives. As the first black woman to hold this position, what does coalition building mean to you and how does coalition building help move you one step closer to achieving the goals you set out for yourself? Yeah, I mean, that's a really deep question. Um, but, you know, I think when it comes to coalition building, I mean, I think, especially around water issues, I feel like it's two parts. I think for one, we're talking about coalition building. It's who is actually in that coalition. Um, I think you had hinted to it about how we need to be involved in these conversations. People are being disproportionately impacted by these issues, by water issues, by flooding, by pollution. We, those are the people that need to actually be in these conversations. Those are the people that need to be factored into policy making. And so I think when I think of coalition, I think of who's actually in our coalition, who's gonna be guiding these goals. And that kind of leads into the second part about the goals that we're actually setting. Is our goal not only just legislation, is our goal to also educate the public who are we targeting? Who are we thinking about when we're talking about different elected officials? Um, how are we trying to make sure we're not over certain certain big green groups are not overstepping others in their relationship with decision makers? And so all of that kind of is it's very complicated. But to me, it's like, how can I figure out how to make sure that our coalition is being built with a huge array of diversity um, and approaches and that the people who are being impacted are being represented and that their goals reflect our own coalition's goals? And how we basically just, I'm using a lot of words, but basically how can we just make sure that who's in here and what we are intending to do actually is reflective of those who are most harmed by water quality issues. Absolutely. And look, as an organizer, right, you're speaking to um, a lot of things that I believe in is like, how can we bring more voices into this work, right, to inform the work that we're doing? So for you, Don, you know, like I said, you've held so many different positions uh, and now you work in government. I think you've had another government experience as well. Uh, but, you know, the community has a complicated relationship with government like over time. Right. So how do you think, you know, how has your approach to this work uh, from a community oriented sense, from a bottom up approach? Uh, how has that made your work more effective? I think that's a really, really good question. You know, I always think about because I've worked, like you said, with government and I've worked on that perspective, but also with the community. So it's like, I've, I've been able to hear both voices. And so I, I always think about when I hear folks like at on a, on a governmental level, kind of at the table talking and the community is not involved. It feels to me like I'm, I'm buying a person, like I'm buying a car with my money, but somebody else is driving it. I can't even, uh, the it's like, you don't even get to know like where you're going or even pick what it looks like. So who wants that type of an approach? Who would sign up for that? Um, most of us would not. So to me, I always think about, you know, when I think about a community approach, it's just that I want to approach things the way I would want to be approached. So I want to understand what's happening and what's being, how I'm being affected in the area that I live, then why wouldn't the community want to be involved? So I kind of come with that approach. And so I have found that really when a community feels vested and involved, they actually are able to drive the process without that type of approach. You know, I've gone to meetings and it's like, you're an outsider. You need to have the community involved in, in understanding and making their own decisions. They just look at me as a woman coming to their community, but it's like having that community approach, they get to understand not just your perspective, but their perspective. And you get to make, help 
kind of grow and make decisions in that way. I was thinking about, an, I was trying to think of an example of how, uh, you know, just kind of like the uh, community approach and why it's important to me and kind of like a lesson learned. And I remember that I worked with a community that flooded. Um, they had water kind of coming up to the front door. It was, it, it was severe. Uh, they kept going to like the local government to get a solution, some of the residents individually, but nothing really happened. So they felt that they weren't being heard. So I was able to kind of work with the community, do some work and do community organizing with some of the residents themselves and really help them to have their voices heard, do some training. Because like you said, a lot of times the relationship between a government and a resident, it's, it can be a little unstable. So to help folks to understand like how the government works, how things are kind of slow sometimes, you know, with the government to help the residents to understand that and how to move the needle as a group. It takes an effort, but it's worth it. And in the end, that group ending up, ended up, you know, just not that group, but they went and knocked our neighbor's doors and say, hey, this is what we need to do. So it's just like a, a community engagement type of approach. And in the end, they, the community ended up ramping up the person in office, they ended up voting that person out, but they started to be involved with like presenting to um, municipal officials, including MWRD, about like what the need for the community was, all because of like that engagement from the bottom up approach. Uh, and so it just made a huge difference with that community and kind of the resources that were brought to them. I love that. Mm -hmm. Oh man, so this, I'm gonna transition to my next question on this one. And so when I was reading about Hazel's activism, uh, she often spoke about how the environmental sector uh, was dominated by white middle-class for so, so long to the point where she was often the only black person at conferences and meetings talking about issues affecting black low-income residents. So when I'm hearing you talk about being in a community and actually developing that trust, right? So actually getting people to trust what you're talking about and you're not going into community telling people like, this is an issue and you need to fix it. It's kind of like, how can I you know, put these tools and resources and this information in your hand and you come to the conclusions yourself. And I'm just here as an ally to help you get the job done, right? So I'm thinking, um, Ayana, about you, you know, given your expertise in public policy, how important is it for Black people to have a seat at the table in policymaking conversations? And you can even talk specifically to clean water advocacy, or you can speak about it broadly. But what does that, why is that so important? I mean, I think just broadly, you know, when we think about policymaking, I kind of always look at it as, you know, it's much harder to get your point across and to have somebody thoroughly listen to what you're trying to say when you are physically outside of the building, outside of that room versus when you are literally sitting there in front of people and you're able to explain yourself and you're able to talk and hear their side of the story. It's much easier than to actually be involved in that policymaking process. And so I, I, this is nothing against, you know, civil disobedience or protesting or anything like that. But I feel like sometimes, you know, within the black community, sometimes our focus can be on that. And I think we also have to emphasize, you know, we need to be having people in all spaces at all, at all bases speaking on behalf of us. And so I think when it comes to policymaking in general, we just really need to actually be there because these decisions that we're making, and this is specifically to clean water, 
these decisions that we're making will literally affect something that people drink every day, people use every day, people recreate on every day for the rest of their lives. And so we have to be in those conversations. I think for when I think of like an example, I think of, for instance, like the lead service line replacement bill that we've been working on. And this is lead pipes and really overall filling water infrastructure is concentrated in black and brown communities. And so even before I, my time at IEC, you know, we started off with conversations and ideas about, oh, well, we could do it as a cost share. What does that actually mean? That means that people disproportionately, black and brown people who are being harmed by this, will be the ones that won't even be able to afford to actually pay for this. When you're talking about a cost share of $3,000, the, the people who are going to get are kind of people that are the people that can afford it. And so that's when I kind of think of, again, that importance of us being involved in that policy making process. It leads to better and more equitable policy outcomes. That's why we just have to be at the table because decisions get made regardless whether or not we're there. And when it comes to something as, as ubiquitous and part of our everyday life as water, we have to be part of that decision. For sure. No, I definitely agree with you just having representation in both the grassroots spaces as well as these government spaces. So I definitely kudos to you for recognizing that and trying to build those coalitions. During the intro, I mentioned the word audacity uh, to describe uh, Hazel. And I noticed like doing her organizing, uh, you know, first she was you know, looking into, you know, the contamination and the lung cancer correlation and that sort of thing. But as she spoke with more people and as she was exposed to more research, uh, she started learning about asbestos in homes and contaminated drinking water and so much more. And so she organized residents to call out the Chicago Housing Authority and city officials uh, for their lack of attention to these hazards. And people called her crazy, said she was way over her head and even suggested that the community didn't care enough or couldn't get organized enough to actually make a difference. She had the audacity to care and do something about it. So Don, you led the Rain Ready program at the Center of Neighborhood Technology. I mean, you kind of hinted to this already uh, about those flood related damages, um, but a lot of people don't know that, you know, Chatham uh, is one of those Southside neighborhoods that's disproportionately prone to flooding because of the way that the, the land is, is set and, you know, a lot of different things pertaining to infrastructure and that sort of thing. So every year, Chatham residents are out of thousands of dollars uh, playing, paying for flood-related damages. What was a highlight from you uh, during that experience? And what did the residents teach you um, during that experience as you were surveying the community? Well, I would say the, I feel as if one of the big highlights is that I felt as if the residents were actually heard. And I mean, not just by the community and by like the local uh, folks that live there locally, but because of the work that um, like I work with the community on doing, like they were heard by nationally. There were articles and featured, uh, featured articles from folks from Chatham about their flooding situation, flooding stories, I should say, in the Chicago Trib and in the Sun Times, like there was a lot of attention brought to that com to the community of Chatham, and so it's like it's not just like a point on a map. Like this community is flooding. It's more like this is a voice. The, the, this is a story from folks that are actually in the community and how they're being impacted. So I was really excited to to be able to see and to work with the community on bringing like not just local. Um, 
you know, attention, but like even from a national perspective, because there was even a study done by the National Academy of Sciences that they work with the Chatham community about flooding within their neighborhood and featured the community. So I think that that was like, in addition to funding <laughs> coming to the community, obviously, but just kind of putting a face to the community, I felt like that was that 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 was really profound. And even to this day, I know that like I'll get reporters to call and say, "Hey, you know, can we speak with a resident about this situation? We want to bring attention to this matter." And that's how you get that's how you push the needle. Sometimes you have to. That's how you push the needle. You bring attention. So. That has really, I would say that that has been one of the highlights of working with the residents of Chatham. And what I've learned uh, is that one thing that I'm most proud of, I should say, is that the residents within the Chatham community that I work with, I'm most proud that the residents were actually heard, not just by um, just kind of the, the local local officials, but they were actually heard nationally and also there were a number of articles written from the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, there were a number of reporters that actually cast a light on the issue that um, actually happened in Chatham with uh, excessive flooding within the community. And I am most proud that the residents, I feel that they really stepped up. I mean, we had residents at the table, for instance, like I know the National Academy of Sciences, like residents were there invited to the table to not only just kind of talk about the issues that were happening within the community, but also to kind of work to come up with solutions for the community. So I have found that a lot of times that, you know, I like the idea that there was a voice, but then also there's a face put to that voice. And so I'm most proud of that work in Chatham because residents are were called as the experts, not myself, just residents themselves about what's happening in their community and just some of the things that I can actually like recommendations to actually move things ahead. And so the funding, of course, that's, <laughs> that's a big plus that um, came to the community, but I'm just happy that residents were actually heard and they felt that their voices were heard. And from a personal experience, I've worked throughout my career in a lot of communities all throughout Northeastern Illinois. Predominantly, I've worked a lot in the early part of my career with folks, like for instance, in, in communities that were predominantly Caucasian white. But what I have, what I found with working with the Chatham residents is like, I, there are people in the community that have the same experience that I do. We look the same and they're just, people are just as passionate and my community and the Chatham community as in any other community. So the, the argument that, oh, residents in the community don't care, that is so not true. And I just, it kind of just infused in me again to just kind of see how passionate residents from Chatham were. Um, not just the residents, community groups, the, the uh, aldermen were all like vested in understanding why there was such an issue with flooding in their community and what they could do about that. So it just just put a, a new charge in me to kind of work with my own community and also with those residents in Chatham. So those are the like my two takeaways from working with the Chatham residents. Uh, let's shift gears a bit. So my mom and grandma are super proud of everything I do, uh, but I don't know if they actually know what I do. Uh, even with my friends, I try to get them to save water by taking shorter showers and helping them be conscious of this and that as it pertains to saving energy. 
And even then, they try to rationalize the urgency of environmental issues and the grand scheme of things like poverty, wealth inequality, those sort of things. Ayana, does your family, uh, particularly your parents, actually understand the work that you do? And how have you worked to normalize conversations around protecting the environment in your immediate circles? Yeah, you know, I think similarly, my parents are very proud of what I do, uh, but not 100% clear. I and mean, I think recently they're starting to kind of get a better understanding, um, but it's definitely a little bit amissed on them. Um, but I think as far as like normalizing conversations, you know, I, I come from a background of a lot of outdoorsy folks. <laughs> That's what we've always considered ourselves. And so, you know, when I think about, I really just try to tie some of the environmental stuff to like regular conversations. Um, you'd be surprised how much environmental related stuff comes up in everyday conversations. And so, you know, my dad, he will maybe talk about hunting or he'll talk about different things. And I'll like tie that to conservation and be like, yeah, like talk about different populations. I think part of it is just like what people already talk about that's related to environment. Um, but I also think I'm a little bit of a cynical person. And so sometimes I try to get people to see a little bit of the bigger picture. And so I never will insinuate the conversation and start it off about environmental stuff, but I will finish it on environmental stuff. I think the example of maybe like what's happening in Texas right now with the power outages and folks like, man, this is horrible. This is crazy. How could their, their local government let this happen? And, you know, let's volunteer and bring food to them and stuff like that. And, you know, for me, I'm kind of in the background where I'm like, yeah, this is really unfortunate, but it's also unfortunate that their government was not prepared for a climate crisis, but they've been knowing about it for decades. And, you know, the problem is not the renewable energy. The problem is that really the government never really wanted to look this in the face. And so I, I guess that's kind of like one example of how I can get very specific. But I'll give another maybe better example. A couple of years ago, the person I was dating at the time, we were walking along Promontory Point and um, we kept seeing trash everywhere. And he was just like, man, you know, this is not cool. Like they should, you know, they should have more recycling. They should have these different things. And I just went a step further. And I'm just like, we shouldn't be producing it in the first place because it can impact is really contributing to climate change. People are going to use it regardless. So we shouldn't put the blame on people and telling them not to use it. We just shouldn't have it in the first place. And, you know, we should advocate for policies that, you know, stop the production of oil and stop the production of plastics. So I'm a you know, full out policy nerd. But he started getting it over time. He'd start looking at stuff differently. Like, oh, maybe I should be using wooden plates or maybe I should be using non-plastic cups or maybe I should use different types of straws. And so that's just kind of one example of how I kind of like approach conversations of giving a little bit of my policy nerd, but also trying to get people to see the bigger picture. And I think it, I think it's effective. I think people kind of get it, even if they get a little, you know, a little eye roll at first, people get it. <laughs> No, I hear you. I mean, uh, it kind of makes me think of this conversation uh, that I've had with my boss before of just like how community communities of color have been green out of necessity uh, for so long, right? So we didn't have the academic jargon, we didn't have the public policy language to really describe uh, some of the things that we would do to save water or to conserve this and that. We just did it because a lot of us didn't have the funds to even think about waste, right? Everything was repurposed in a lot of different ways. So I think when I approach these conversations, I always just try to connect it back to like the everyday experience. I think people think environmentalism is this this far off thing that doesn't really affect my life or is not very urgent. But when you actually, as you mentioned, have those uh, 
one-on-one conversations and really connect it to the day-to-day. Uh, people can see these small things that they, they can do to not only save water and save energy, uh, but also influence our future um, environment for generations to come. So no, I definitely agree with you on that. Just last question for you all. Hazel was very much a black woman that loved her community, that saw the solutions in her community and worked to bring them out. With your lived experience as black women, daughters, community members, and for you, Don, as a mother, why should black people care about the environment? What's at stake for us from your perspective? So I don't want, I, I can jump right in, but the, why should we care? The reason why we should care is because so many of the decisions that are made impact my community. So if there is, when we talk about environmental justice, so many of the decisions about, you know, where this, you know, pollutant will be placed or where should we build development? It's going to eventually run off to this community. It affects the community that we live in, me as a Black woman. So I like the term, I think it's called NIMBY, not in my backyard, but it is in your backyard. <laughs> so that's why you should care because it affects you directly. You know, just having a better community, that, to me, that's like hands down why you should care because it affects you. Well, first off, I, I don't know why I haven't heard of the word NIMBY yet, but I might steal that from you. So what about you, Ayana? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... And, I, and when I think of environment issues, I'm like, I don't know, I, I'm very much Gen Z. So my mind is automatically climate change. Like that's just where my mind goes. And when I think about environment issues, I mean, I feel like I have a self-interest as a black woman in the environment because I know the catastrophes that could result from climate change will directly impact the rights and privileges that I've that people in the past have fought on behalf of for me to have today. And so I know that those privileges and rights that I have are directly tied to economic, environmental and political stability. And so for me, it's like, that's why when I think about as a black woman, why should we care about the environment? We have to think about what happens if we don't? What position are we gonna be pushed back on if we don't care about the environment? What's gonna happen when I, that, I don't, I'm not going to go doom gloom the environment because the economy collapses, but what, what happens if we have those instability? What will happen to us? Because we see what happens right now with no, with, you know, pretty much stable environment. What's going to happen when that isn't there? And so for me, that's kind of what really drives me and really tries to get me to encourage other people to at least have a little bit of care because we all have a stake in it at some point. So yeah, mine is a little bit different because I'm like, I, I try to, I'm always, I'm very like really big picture. But I really like Don's point about on an individual level, like what is in your backyard? What is harming you already? Like it's, it's there. These decisions are going to be made about what will affect the rest of your life. And so I really like the point that she said, especially about the NIMBY, that it's in your backyard. You, you should care. So that, that's kind of my perspective, but also really appreciating Don's perspective as well. No, absolutely. Uh, I really, really appreciate both of you. Both of you are amazing. I always tell you that. I'm always so energized, you know, just speaking to Black women in the environmental space because there are so few of us. And but although we see 
our community groups are really always ramping up doing the work. I see more and more Black women in these government spaces and environmental agencies. So it makes me hopeful that the representation will keep multiplying and that we'll just be able to just see more of us. So I think on that note, I just want to say, look, just six or seven years ago, uh, if you would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said a history professor. Uh, and although I'm slight, I've taken a slightly different path. Uh, I always celebrate opportunities to highlight the stories of my ancestors. Hazel Johnson was ahead of her time. And to this day, black and brown communities are still disproportionately affected by environmental hazards. It's important to have the Don Walkers and Ayanna Symbols lifting the voices of our communities in rooms of power, but it's even more important for us to listen, support, and fund the organizations on the ground that are tackling these issues. From the back of the yards where I grew up, a stockyard corridor, all the way to Altgill Gardens, Hazel's old stomping grounds. There are residents everywhere ready to get mobilized for the betterment of their communities. So I just wanna thank you, Don and Nayana, for the important work that you do. And once again, happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month to you too. Happy Black History Month. <laughs> Becky. <laughs> Shakina, thank you so much for taking over the broadcast today. That was a really amazing episode. And I would love to have you on my show as a guest in the future as well. So as always, the broadcast is brought to you by C-Strategies, a strategic communications and public affairs firm bringing passion and veteran experience to help clients meet their business goals. Thank you again to our sponsor Evolver and our podcast home, 1871. The broadcast is produced and edited by Twee Thornton. Additional editing provided by Nicholas Fedora. Music by Christy Bennett's Fumi Gypsy Project. And to learn more about Sea Strategies and the broadcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sea Strategies Shy. Mm-hmm.